people who do bad things are not necessarily evil people. So her biggest takeaway about Adolf Eichmann, right, who was this big, high, important Nazi guy, killed lots of people, was that he was the most average person she had ever seen. He was just very average. You know, we want to imagine that, let's say, big tech companies are headed by like evil monsters, right? That whoever, whoever we think is a bad person, that they're just like actively evil person. And there's two problems with that. One is that, you know, these companies are not run on one person. They're run on many different people contributing to that, right? Um, and two, you know, it, is that there are actually very few actively evil people. And that's the interesting part of the field of algorithmic ethics. Most of it's built on this idea of unintended consequences, that like people in the collective built something that ended up being harmful, but there wasn't actually a bad actor in the bunch. And I find that very fascinating. And that's how it's different from things like cybersecurity, adversarial ML, where you're actually just looking for bad people trying to do bad things. Wow. If you didn't quite take that in, I want you to rewind and listen again. That was Dr. Ruman Choudhury, head of AI ethics at Twitter. This is one of the most eye-opening conversations we've had on the podcast. Ruman's an extremely accomplished individual who did her undergrad at MIT and graduate work at Columbia and UCSD, and she eventually started her own company to combat algorithmic bias parity. Honestly, half this episode is me being a Ruman fanboy because I've been following her work for a while and it was surreal having her on. But tune in for a conversation that'll really force you to rethink the things you build. Also, hope you've been keeping up with all the next iteration podcast news. We recently added our first partner podcast, The Dubscast with Tristan Wedderburn, which focuses on tech and business shorts. We're also adding two more podcasts to our family soon, one on healthcare and one on product management. So look out for those. It's an exciting time to be part of the next iteration family. And so we wanted to shout out one of our day one listeners, Amy Tang. You've been supporting and listening to us since day one. So shout out you for all the love and support throughout the years. Hope you like this one. You are now listening to the Next Iteration Podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. Uh, and it's going to be hard to uh, live up to that intro. But I'll try <laughs> yeah, I mean, let me hopefully help you out with that a little bit. So uh, a lot of the listeners that we have on the show, they are very young, right? And to to them, seeing people who have accomplished so much, it's almost like uh, you you mythologize yourself in a way sometimes, right? So let I want to try and humanize you a bit. So to to kind of start that off and kick us off, I wanted to ask you, what is, this is super random, but like, what is your favorite thing about yourself? I have had a lot of people tell me, and this like predates me being in tech from a particularly younger age too, that I, uh, I have this innate ability to spot BS, <laughs> whether it's in people and actually increasingly now in companies, in technology, um, mm. So I, I would say I would say that, and as a sort of a related follow-up, is uh, an intense sense of loyalty. So mm-hmm. I am incredibly loyal to the people I am close with. I am close with few people, but they know they can rely on me for anything. And I also expect it of the people who work with me. You know, who I interact with. I love that. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry to put you on the spot there, but you know, I'm sure you're used to everybody asking you about like all the work that you're doing and everything. So <laughs> we got to keep you on your toes over here. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Now, so Fwad and I were kind of discussing this conversation beforehand and you know, he would never like, let me, let me brag on his behalf for a second, but he is super passionate about these things. So I really want to let him uh, kind of take the reins on this podcast a bit because it's best coming, you know, from his mouth, especially when people are passionate about the things they talk about the entire conversation takes on a new color, right? So Fouad, what is a question that you have been dying to ask Dr. Chaudhry here? Ooh, I was going to warm it up and then and then get, get hot because <laughs> I don't know if you've had a long day of meetings yet. Um, and you know what? This but, is my favorite meeting of today. Just don't let any of my other meetings know this. So don't, don't okay. even, do not even worry. Don't worry. I won't put it on Twitter. <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, I think, um, you know, one question that would help a lot of the, the young people here is kind of your path through academia and then going into private industry. And, and that's something we've discussed a little bit before on the podcast, 
but really no one with not with somebody like you. So undergrad MIT, master's at Columbia, PhD at UCSD, you've kind of been everywhere. You've done it all. So one question I wanted to ask you is what has being in the world of academia kind of instilled with you and taught you? And what did you take away from academia moving into uh, the private sector? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So I think some, some of the most important skills I learned in an academic program, but specifically in a PhD program, is how to self-organize and set your own milestones and deliverables and do them. So when you're writing your dissertation in your PhD program, literally nobody's on your case. No one's going to remind you. You don't have due dates. Um, it is up to you to scope your work, do your work, and then send it to people and remind them to read it and remind them three times and then get their feedback and incorporate their feedback and repeat for literally four years um, before you deliver a finished product. You know, And also even before then, studying for your comprehensive exams, again, very self-motivated. All you know is you're going to have these intense few days of written and verbal examinations. Um, when you ask, what am I supposed to study? The answer is everything. And <laughs> there you go. And you're handed a date. And that, that's about it. So All taking subject. something that sounds big and scary and insurmountable and breaking it down into something that's doable and also holding yourself accountable, probably the most important thing I learned in grad school. Mm-hmm. And how is that kind of translated in academia, do you find that you come across similar scenarios a lot, or sorry, into the private sector? Do you find that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about the field of ML ethics, right? Like mm-hmm. it's huge, like everything is ethics. I mean, it's a good thing and a bad thing. You know, I get, I get questions now, for example, about climate impact of algorithms. And while I find that stuff intellectually interesting, it is not what I'm good at and it's not what I do. And there are definitely people who do. For example, another example is now everyone's talking about biases in large language models. Um, again, like it, it's almost like everything is interesting in this field. So how do you scope and define it? So when, I, when I'm building my team now at Twitter, one of the things we are doing and one of the ways to be successful as a team in an industry that sounds nebulous and all encompassing yet directionless to be perfectly honest, is to actually know what your vision is, know what your goals are and kind of know where you want to go, like where you want to be in a year, where you want to be in three years. Otherwise, you're just going to sort of spin your wheels a lot and have lots of interesting conversations. But when it comes time to deliver something and make change, you'll you'll find that unless you have focus, you're not going to make that change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like that's one of the hardest things like when you're young to to help identify and narrow down that focus, right? Because mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of stuck with that analysis paralysis because I mean, today in this age of connectivity that we have, in some ways, it's a lot easier to hone your vision in because of the ease of access to all the educational resources, the people, you can ask the questions you need to. But in some ways, it's a lot harder because of that very reason, right? Because you have so many potential options like ahead of you. And for uh, a lot of the people, you know, in our networks, like they are just, they're huge nerds, right? And as huge nerds, it's hard to rein in your nerdiness on one thing because it's like damn I could be nerding out on this other thing or this other thing and yeah nerd FOMO nerd FOMO yeah that's that's an excellent way to put it so how did you go about narrowing your focus like was there one pivotal moment that helped you kind of identify that why or that that something that just drew you in and became your new north star yeah I mean one thing I will say is I definitely have nerd FOMO especially when it comes (laughs) to ML ethics um, one good way around it is to surround yourself with really smart people who do all the things that you yourself are never going to be good at. Mm-hmm. So that's frankly one thing I love Twitter for, like the platform. Um, I jokingly call myself a Twitter power user, but you know, <laughs> so many of us in the field of responsible ML, we learn about what other people are doing and we read their papers and that's how we get smart. Um, but the intelligent thing to do, I think, is to be a generalist about many things, but then be really good at one thing. So uh, one of my subfields in grad school was political philosophy. And then we had to read this piece by this guy, Irving Berlin, it's called The Fox and the Hedgehog. Um, And it's really about this idea of like specialization versus generalization, which one's better, right? So what is a hedgehog hedgehog good at? A hedgehog is good at digging holes. It's immensely good at digging holes. It's actually not good at much else. What is a fox good at? Lots of things, but nothing foxes are very clever right that's all we know about them but they can problem solve but can they dig a hole better than a hedgehog no can they build a dam better than a beaver no can they build a nest better than a bird no um so you kind of want to be you know i I think the takeaway is often that you want to be a fox and not a hedgehog 
But I don't know if that's entirely true. I think you kind of need to be a blend of both. Um, you need to have the thing that you're very passionate about and you're really good at. And, you know, they wouldn't even need to pay you to do it, but they should pay you to do it. Um, but also be aware, like spatially aware or intellectually aware of what's happening around you. I will say like, you know, Fouad, you were talking about how kind of I've been all over the map with so many things. And the one thing I will say is, you know, you, you get to chase opportunity by keeping an eye out for opportunities. Um, one problem people have when they narrow down too, like, you know, sort of rabbit hole too much in something is they kind of miss the forest for the trees and they miss the other opportunities that come around. So it's kind of good to be a little bit of both. I feel like that's kind of an unsatisfactory answer. So my answer was do everything all the time with all the but people. But then also focus. <laughs> but then also focus. But like, honestly, like, you know, this is why I don't sleep. So here you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we cracked the code. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah, no, like that, that makes sense to me in a way, because I mean, like, that's kind of how I've been navigating the pa past like year or so in my life is, you know, everybody's, or for the longest time, people have been rewarded for being specialists, because that's what we needed, right? But I think uh, I've seen a lot of people around like our, I guess our generation too, who have started to becoming, who have started becoming more of an, a generalized specialist for lack of like a formal term mm -hmm. for it in the sense where, you know, instead of just narrowing your focus on one specific field, you find two or three different like areas of interest or like fields that you really enjoy and that you are passionate about, you go deep in all of them and you try to find that niche where you can find a, a synergistic relationship between all two or three of those things. And in doing so, you become even more hyper-specialized in a way because, mm -hmm. you know, how many people, the more you niche down, like the more connections you make, the more unique you become in that sense. So I don't know if that's necessarily where you were going with it, but that's yeah. how I've been conceptualizing yeah. recently. Well, like what you're making me think about is, you know, this idea of transferable skill set. So it's like, you have the things you are good at, but that doesn't mean you're good at a particular tool or a particular industry. It means you have a, you are very good at a particular set of skills that then one can leverage in many different settings. So, you know, just as a very concrete example, when I, you know, I am by training a quantitative social scientist, I'm a political scientist. So then you might ask like, how does one become a data scientist? Or, you know, that, that's what I did, I transferred over. But I did that, like, I will tell you specifically how I did that. Um, I spent about a year getting consulting projects and specifically the goal of those consulting projects, which I got through my network. One of them actually was a, was a UC system project on understanding what graduate students need. I did a project with the LA County Museum of the Arts. I did a project with the World Health Organization. It was all over the map, but they all specifically had the same goal was to illustrate that I am able to take data, apply it quantitatively to a model and have actionable outcomes that can be implemented to do things. So the LA County Museum of Arts project, which is super fascinating, is you know they wanted to expand their user base. And they wanted to reach out to the you know, to different people other than the usual suspect. So, you know, I did a very specific experimental design in R, I got their survey data, I did a thing, and then I gave, and I told them, this is the kind of programming you should do. Here are the people you should reach out to. And I'm able to show, here's how they increase their membership, right? So I do three or four of those projects and I'm able to say, I have this core skill set, right? I'm, I'm a quant person. I know how to take data and I know how to take numbers and how to throw them into a model. I know how to interpret the output. That is the same set of skills I use as a graduate student, and it is the same set of skills I use as a data scientist. But you just kind of have to figure out the like extra 20% of knowledge you need to stick it in another field, right? Mm -hmm. So when you move from place to place, it's like your core being is kind of the same. You are a person who does X. Like I'm really good at things like survey design, uh, mm -hmm. under like crafting good experiments, um, collecting data in a particular way, analyzing output, applying it for business uses. Nowhere in there did I say it's a particular industry or a particular kind of tool, a particular programming language. That's the part that makes it transferable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Going back to your um, analogy with the fox, it's like, you know, the fox isn't necessarily particularly good at any one thing, but because they know how to do so many different things, they know the context in which to apply each of those skills. And sometimes that matters more than being good at a particular skill, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. And actually, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and then, you know, sort of once you and this is the part where you like sort of surround yourself with people who are good at the things you're not good at. Like there are plenty of things that all of us are not good at. And the smart thing to do is identify those and make sure that the people you're working with, the people you're collaborating with are able to compliment you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think this is a, a natural segue into my next question, because I wanted to ask you about um, your time at Accenture and kind of the world of consulting. So uh, let me preface this by asking a question. I don't know if you've read the book Winners Take All 
or excellent sheet, but there, there's like this whole school of books that basically paint consulting and finance as like these big bad members of the old guard, right? Like these like corporate tycoons who like steal away like good talent. And there are all these kids coming out of college, like who don't know what they want to do, but want to build a ton of skills. And they think consulting is the way they do it or finance is the mm-hmm. way they do it. And so, you know, I, I'm not saying. No, no, I, I, like I'm, the I'm big smiling. Bad tycoon. No, so it's really like, okay. So I will also need to give you a little bit of historical context here. So when I graduated, from undergrad, it was like the era of big finance, right? So literally everybody, everybody I graduated with from MIT, no matter what they majored in, they all went to go work at a uh, in investment banking or a hedge fund. Like they all went mm-hmm. to the Lehman's and the Merrill's and the Morgan's. And yeah. I was very like, F the man, I'm not going to go do this. Like, you're <laughs> not going to make me a corporate automaton, right? So fast forward, like <laughs> however many years. And here I am sitting on an offer from Accenture. And I'm like, quite like quite literally the biggest company I, I would have ever worked at by far, right? The biggest place I'd ever worked at before then was probably like 10,000 people, right? So Accenture is a half a million people, probably more than that by now. Massive, like, yeah. right. It's like, you know, bigger than the population of entire countries, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so just to put that in context. So, you know, so I, I do have people ask me that question. The reason I was kind of smiling is because like, I, I was definitely of the opposite mindset that I don't want to become some sort of corporate automaton when I was young and like first getting started. But mm-hmm. here's, so having been at Accenture, you know, and actually interestingly, I had somebody sort of comment something similar on Twitter. And my response to him was to say that, you know, all systems, all co- all collaboratives, literally all of them, you know, whether you talk about a nonprofit, an academic institution, a for-profit institution, they all have aspects of them that are harmful to society or some sort of subgroup, or they are built on some sort of a, you know, a harmful institution, right? You wouldn't have Harvard without slavery. Um, You wouldn't have most nonprofits without the exploitation of the labor of, frankly, young people who are idealistic. I I say this as somebody who worked in nonprofits and public policy for the first 10 years after after school. Um, So I don't actually think that any, you know, that, that most, that there is any sort of idealistically pure institution. Um, so I'm going to preface it by that. But I will say that, of course, there are entities that do active harm. There are some entities that are uh, intending to do more good. And it's up to the individual to kind of draw where their line is. So specifically with consulting firms and specifically with Accenture, there were definitely parts of Accenture that did things that I did not agree with. Um, I was fortunately in a position where I could take action because I was the responsible AI lead. Um, so what I would add, what I would advise people to consider when considering a job like this is, you know, what sort of agency and autonomy will they have over their own career and their own job and where they're placed? So sc- quite specifically, what part of the company are you being hired into? What is the kind of job you're going to have? What is the team you're going to work on and who are you reporting to? And that to me is sometimes more important than the organization itself, because you can have a very impressive and nice sounding role at a company where they stick you in a corner and you're completely ineffective. Um, or, you know, you could be thrown into the middle of it and be allowed to have agency and autonomy over things and, you know, try to take an organization that maybe isn't building a net good and try to make it better. Um, so I feel like you're gonna get nothing but complex answers from me because I overthink everything. Um, oh, but good. I, I, I thought a lot about it because, you know, it, it kind of did fly in the face of everything I had built my career on. If you look at my career before Accenture, I haven't worked at a big tech company and that was very much on purpose. Uh, I didn't, I've never applied to a job at Google. Um, I only applied to a job at Facebook because the, the recruiter would not stop hounding me and they sounded really nice. And <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like I, I didn't yeah. think I was that person. Um, so it was something I thought a lot about before taking the job at Accenture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this like question of like personal responsibility and like general responsibility is like, is a, is a hard one to answer. And it's something I've mm-hmm. thought about a lot too. Like mm-hmm. the scale at which you operate can sometimes play a role too. Like, you know, how much good can you do if you do 1% good for X number of people versus if you do 100% good for like three people, right? And that, yeah. that question is something I've thought about a lot. I don't know if like- I mean, it, into... it, it does, it's so like, there's this whole community of folks called effective altruism. I'm sure, yeah. you know, yeah. there are a non-zero percent of your listeners that are part <laughs> of the EA movement. I will say like, there's a lot of this that's not quantifiable. This is where I put my social science hat on. Like you can't stick this in a spreadsheet. Um, I think all of these are subjective and fungible metrics. You can't really put a number on it. 
Is it better if you go work a job in finance and then donate $20,000 a year to the ACLU? I don't know. I, have, I, I literally have no idea. Um, does it make you happy to do that? You know, are you happy in your job? Are you impacting people the way you want to impact people? You know, do you believe in the tenets of the ACLU? There's so there's a gazillion questions to ask within that. So, you know, yes, there is a way. I think it is human nature to try to sort of standardize or measure or, you know, put clarity around things like that. And these things are ultimately aspirational rather yeah. than a goal to be achieved. The same applies for responsible AI, by the way, right? Like mm -hmm. I have completely understood that a lot of the work we do in this field is meant to be a journey and not a destination. And that's a very scary thing for people who are data-driven and numbers-driven. Right, because you want concrete outcomes. You want to see of the course. results. You want to see the report at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And like that might not happen for- it Might not happen. Or, or, it, or the answer is like, it is a journey and you're, you're going to make change in a few years. And you, know, you have to just make sure you are loving your journey. Mm -hmm. Okay, zooming out a little bit, because that was like more so on personal responsibility. Yeah. Uh, I want to zoom out to like general- like a really big general question, and this might be a really complicated answer because it's a hard question, but do you think it's truly possible to innovate ethically within like a for-profit corporation kind of entity? And so let me preface this question with like a little bit of background. So I listened to your talk at Slush and you mentioned open bionics. So, uh, and how they're using, you know, the surplus from exponential technologies like 3D printing to drive costs down, right? And because of that lower cost, they can, you know, then cater their product uh, which, you know, for those in the audience who didn't get a chance to listen to the talk is uh, essentially like prosthetic limbs, right? So um, with the lower costs, they can, they can go to market and, and still have profit margins for these, you know, lower income individuals. And I feel like we've heard that a lot from the tech world. We've heard a lot that like, oh, because of this tech, we can then serve these people at a lower cost and still make a profit. But there's always that like drawing, like profit drawing incentive that's like, okay, well, if we could sell at a lower cost, we could just also sell it to rich people and make mm -hmm. even more money, right? So do you think it's possible to do that ethically? And like, is there like a lasting incentive for that? Or do you think we need like a completely new model entirely, like something like a B Corp, if you've heard of those or um, some other, I don't know, viable path? Yeah, so... You're correct. I have a very long and complicated answer to your question. <laughs> um, so the short answer is yes, uh, question mark. And the long answer is it is a very long journey that requires many things. I think that, uh, so, you know, I am ultimately a data, data person, a numbers person. And I also am savvy and recognize that if you play games by other people's rules and you don't win. Um, so very specifically, and we can talk about this at the most granular, granular level, like the level of a model, or we could talk about this at the biggest level, at the level of a corporation or a market. Currently, they are not structured to support responsible or ethical or, you know, sort of humane uses of technology. That is absolutely correct. Um, I do. So, and there are a few reasons, and, you know, I'm not the first person to point this out. Um, one is sort of what we are measuring um, and what we are measuring immediately impacts what we value. Right? So we measure very particular things. We measure, let's say, quarter over quarter revenue. Uh, we measure at Twitter, let's say, quarter over quarter active users or engagement yeah, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Right? Um, those are maybe not the right metrics to be looking at. So there's an entire arm of my team that Dr. Christian Lum is now leading. And I'm very excited to have her on board. And it's an operationalization and metrics arm. So we need to find new and better ways of measuring success of our output. So right, Because right now we have actually very outdated um, and very limited ways. And I actually even take this a step above all of this. There's some really interesting you know, research on GDP and specifically what GDP chooses to measure and not measure. And very specifically, the reason why care work, homework um, and childcare is undervalued is because they actually decided to not measure it and not value it. So there's a really good book called, I think it's called like What If Women Counted or something like that. And it's specifically about the active decision in creating GDPs to not include the work that was traditionally feminized and therefore it doesn't get captured as value work. So when we innovate, we innovate around things that can move a metric. So we're gonna say workers are spending X amount of time doing Y. So we're gonna reduce that time. So now we can measure improvement. But if we don't capture or calculate the impact of like, I don't know, having to like take care of a sick parent or you know being up all night feeding a baby which we don't do, then of course we're not going to optimize for that. So that's kind of one, one thing is, is to like, you know, to create the right kinds of metrics, but specifically at like a model level, uh, one narrative, uh, you know, since I know you have a, a very tech-based audience is most of our challenges and competitions and how we measure success in a model is based on the concept of accuracy. 
right? As somebody with a stats background, it makes me curl up and die. Uh, and that's because accuracy is a very specific measurement of R squared, which is one of many ways you can measure success and robustness of a model. Now, because it happened to get the best name, it got the name accuracy. It's easily <laughs> translatable <laughs> to like a VC where you're like, exactly. hey, my model improved accurate. I was like, oh, accuracy. But it does not mean what these people think it means. But as a result, we get these intensely entangled models with, that are actually just fairly useless and non-implementable. I think the best example is how, you know, the very famous like net, Netflix competition winner back in like, I don't know, 2008 or whatever, was actually not implemented because it's impossible to implement this, right? So we end up with these overly convoluted models that are also not useful, but also they're incredibly privacy violating, ethics violating, a lot of these problems are introduced. So why not create new and better ways to measure success of output? So like, so I'm giving you kind of a convoluted, so that's one, that's one aspect of it. Um, I think the second aspect of it is time how we, the, the temporal increments in which we choose to measure these metrics really matters. So of course, you're not going to improve equity in a quarter. I'm sorry, like you're just not. Because <laughs> we're talking about like generations of ingrained biases built into our institutions. We're talking about people who are actively combating these things. I'm not going to show you that in one quarter, we've completely moved the needle. And now, you know, Black women executives are on par with other executives. It's just not happening. So we have to kind of be okay with that. We have no good way of measuring long-term health, long-term success, and long-term value. What we do see are constantly stories of these things, right? So now all of the, so OpenAI, for example, closed down their robotics arm. And I specifically remember all, like, all the fuss about robotics. And, you know, and while it is an impressive thing to have trained a reinforcement learning model, right, to, to manipulate to robotically manipulate a Rubik's cube, it's actually not solving our real problems. But that's where the money goes because it looks cool. Um, but instead of saying like, what is the impact we're able to have over a long period of time, instead of showing a flashy object, um, you know, we're, we're very focused on like the immediate return rather than long-term. But we do see that in the long-term, these things are not giving us the returns that we want. Another one is, you know, self-driving cars. And I feel like I'm getting a lot of hate for this, right? But self-driving <laughs> cars are nothing. They are not even remotely what we thought we were getting 10 years ago when people started talking about self-driving cars. I have a whole presentation on this where if you look at early concept cars of self-driving cars, it's a very specific thing. And there are a couple of design decisions that are really critical. One, they have no steering wheels. Two, the seats all kind of face each other. And three, like sometimes the windows are like, you know, blacked out or they're like a nice scenery. And it's because our vision of a self-driving car was literally that I get into a pod and it takes me somewhere, right? And instead, like it's just trickled down to the extent that it is basically a car with lots of sensors on it, but I still got to drive it. So, you know, like we're nowhere yeah. yet. Billions of dollars have put in because they're able to, because they, they can show the flashy thing quarter over quarter instead of saying, let's measure our success in n number of years. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the two big things to think about are metrics of success and sort of the temporal aspect of when we are asked to prove success mm -hmm. yeah and i thought we'd be driving every, i thought everybody would just be driving flying cars by now too but i guess i was off right i mean even stuff. the whole flying cars thing there was a really good article recently about them and they're really just kind of like glorified helicopters yeah yeah, yeah. that's it's literally really what they are. and it's they're like what two hundred thousand dollars two hundred sixty thousand dollars is the starting yeah. price for i forget which company like and it goes hand in hand with like the rapidly rising income inequality right and just sort no. of these like you know these like very flamboyant showcases of wealth that are almost like sticking the middle finger at regular people yeah oh yeah yeah i mean i work at spacex so i i won't say anything about that <laughs> oh that's that's right let's not let's not let's not but i will say that space has definitely been the subject of a lot of that critique uh i mean i work yeah. on the mars program no millionaires on those but well i mean but space is a really good example of like how it could be a really particular way right so for the folks mm -hmm. who work in algorithmic ethics have been using the term like tech optimist and tech positive because we see a better future than status quo. It's, you know, like, I think we often get painted mm -hmm. as people who are being negative. And I actually firmly disagree. I think we see better than status quo. Most of the technology that's being built incrementally moves an existing thing to be slightly better. And we're saying, no, like F all of that, start all over and build the best thing possible, right? So rather than make fancy toys for rich people, 
why don't we actually make it accessible for lots of people to enjoy this or get some value or have it help them in their daily lives? Yeah, and like just quickly backtracking to your last answer, because I think you covered a lot of very interesting points there, um, like all at once. So I just wanted to super quick just tease apart. <laughs> yeah, we're saloning, so give us a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're a, little, a little slow on the uptake sometimes. But, um, one part of that I really like that you mentioned uh, is the, the optimizing for success piece, because I think there's a really interesting like underlying theme here to pick apart, which is that a lot of people can, you know, they'll do their due diligence, they'll set their KPIs, and they'll measure their, their level of success based on those KPIs, right? But KPIs are really good for narrowing your focus, but you also run the risk of optimizing for the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So you're still successful, quote unquote, by those metrics, but because you optimized on the wrong thing, you end up a little straying further and w- further away from like the goal you really want to achieve. And you kind of touched upon that. Uh, with and you mentioned you have another person on your team. I'm sorry, completely forgot their name. But how, like, what I'm curious, like, what that process is of reevaluating and redefining those KPIs because mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to realize when you're straying until it's already too late. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, I will say she only started a few weeks ago, so I'm not gonna like try to define her work for her. <laughs> but um, I've been thinking about, uh, so I've been thinking about it in a lot of ways. So one. One way to think about it is what are the ways we can measure model output that's sort of generalizable and scalable and capturing the concepts that we're talking about here. So one way is measuring bias, unfairness, inequality, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of work that's being done in there. I think the other way is actually to start measuring things like positive impact and equity. So Twitter's whole concept of conversational health, I, I find really fascinating, like, Literally years ago, when they first announced it, my team at Accenture submitted something to it because I thought the idea was really interesting. Another quite similar one is this idea of algorithmic choice, like user agency or human in the loop. These are words that get thrown around, but I've literally never seen it done well. I've not seen a single example where we're actually meaningfully capturing input from people saying, here's how this thing can be improved or changed, or here's how I would better like to see something. It's still very top down. So, you know, I, I think one thing would be like being able to measure positive outputs of models that are intended to improve existing models would be one. Um, You know, another would be sort of custom ways of measuring concepts like conversational health, I think would be, would be another one. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I find it to be an interesting line of inquiry um, because like I said, I think I realized sort of early on is if we try to, play by the rules of the traditional game, we're not gonna win. It's not built that way. (laughs) So you kind of fight a losing battle, um, whether it's for the actual metrics or whether it's because of sort of the time aspect of things. Yeah, it can feel kind of very Kafka-esque in that way. I I think Bhutan is the Mm -hmm. only country in the world who doesn't measure success by GDP. And I can't remember the exact term for it, but they measure it by like a gross yeah, happiness yeah it's, it's the, it's the happiness. There's also a colleague of mine does the World Happiness Index. Uh, and then it's very oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, so there is something called the World Happiness Index. It, it is very interesting to see, like when we start measuring, you know, sort of, and this is maybe for like a bigger perspective, like from a government perspective, right? Like how happy um, are your citizens? But also there are ways in econometrics that, you know, we've looked at these kinds of things. So income inequality is one. So something like a Lorentz curve or Gini coefficient is something that anybody who's done so like econometric stuff is very, very familiar with. And, you know, we use that to measure, uh, you know, to measure in- income inequality. Um, and, you know, and again, I'm dipping into like my old world of political science when we think about like how democratic a country is. Um, it is not just built on whether or not you have institutions for voting, and, you know, I don't know, representation across different parts of the country. I mean, Nazi Germany had that. You wouldn't exactly have called them a democracy, now would you? Uh, but people love to point out that Hitler got elected. Um, so, you know, I, I think there are analogs in other fields where people have sort of thought about these complex problems. So you have this idea. And so to go back to your point, Damien, like you have this idea of what success looks like. You build the structure for what that looks like. And we want it to be a blueprint that as long as I do things A, B, and C, I'm going to achieve this goal of democracy. But it is not the case because there's all these little nitpicky moving parts. There's also ways of gaming the system. 
right? Just because your country has a constitution doesn't automatically mean that it's a democracy, but it is one of the markers of a democracy, right? And so similarly, when we think about models, is your model ethical because it's, you know, doing a for good, like, thing? So that, that's a really good example. I was talking to somebody today about how a lot of the models or a lot of the AI that was built in the humanitarian space, actually some of the most invasive and harmful AI from a privacy perspective, creating biometric databases of people who are refugees and fleeing genocide, not a good look because now you have an entire insecure database of people who are literally being tracked down to be murdered, right? What kinds of protections are you doing? Um, I don't know, like, and there, there's just like a lot of, a lot of things to ask about these things. And, and I suppose I said earlier that it's sort of a, it's a journey, not a destination. So you're constantly having to like interrogate and examine what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to say something that sounds really weird, but I love that you mentioned Nazi Germany because <laughs> let's not take that out of context. <laughs> yeah, that will not be edited out of context. I that's promise. That's the you. snippet right there. <laughs> yeah, we do that's preview the teaser the audio podcast. for this. Yeah, that's just going to be it. Uh, because I wanted to talk about the banality of evil and kind of like that yes, moral outsourcing. Point. Yeah, um, the moral outsourcing term that you coined. Um, so for those in the audience that maybe are not familiar. Uh, the banality of evils, I think the best way to explain it is through the analogy that you mentioned. If you're a bus driver in Nazi Germany and your job is to drive a bus um, and, you know, you just say you're doing your job, you are not active in your decision. You are not, you know, the mastermind Bob behind the operation or anything. You're just driving a bus, but you're driving a bus full of Jews to, you know, Auschwitz, right? Then where is sort of like your personal responsibility and how does that intersect with, you know, the the blame or the guilt for you know the, the actions that have been occurring so uh yeah maybe maybe do you want to explain moral outsourcing and then we can have a, a discussion around that because that's something i'm really really interested in yeah absolutely and uh, i'll preface this by saying i see a lot less of this now than i did years ago, and i'm happy to see that um so specifically there used to be and there still is right this idea that technology is neutral and you know, you're just kind of contributing to make a product better. And like, why do you have to concern yourself with sort of the larger implications on marginalized communities, AKA edge cases, right? Marge- like that's what a marginalized community is. It is an edge case in your model, right? Um, and it very specifically refers to an example where a researcher presented an improvement on a predictive policing algorithm. And when they were sort of asked, uh, well, don't you think that this is harmful because now it's going to lead to increased harassment of minority communities, they're like, I'm just an engineer. Like, what, like why are you asking me these questions? Um, and specifically, the, the, so moral outsourcing is about, you know, sort of taking the morality of the work you are doing, the moral responsibility of the work you are contributing to, and sort of assuming that because you are not somebody who's quote unquote important in the organization, that you don't have a responsibility to take action. Um, but like I said, I, I am so glad to see that there is a, an increasing shift in this mindset and specifically people asking for and trying to get the kinds of resources they need. Um, and specifically to the Hannah Arendt example, it's based on this book called Eichmann in Jerusalem. And so she went to go see the, the Nazi trials and she specifically listened to a trial of this guy, Adolf Eichmann, who's super high up and considered to be this like evil person. So the other part of banality of evil is also that you know people who do bad things are not necessarily evil people. So her biggest takeaway about Adolf Eichmann, right, who was this big, high, important Nazi guy, killed lots of people directly and indirectly, was that he was the most average person she had ever seen. He was just very average. He just did what he was supposed to in life, didn't rock the boat. You know, he was like a good mid-level bureaucrat. Um, Typical middle manager material. (laughs) Typical middle manager. And that's literally what he was. Like, she just goes on and on about, like, sort of his averageness. And that's kind of the point. You know, we want to imagine that let's say big tech companies are headed by like evil monsters, right? That whoever whoever we think is a bad person, (laughs) right? Whether it's like Bezos or or like whoever, right? But they're just like actively evil person. Um, And there's two problems with that. One is that, you know, these companies are not run on one person. They're run on many different people contributing to that, right? Um, And two, you know, is that there are actually very few actively evil people in this world or in this field. I mean, I, I have my thoughts on some of the names in the comments. Evil people, you know? but you know, we, we'll, we'll keep that for Drop the, the name. Outtake. Drop the name. Nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll do that through my alt Twitter account. 
You have a burner account. Uh, I, oh, everyone has this. Everybody has a burner account. I actually have two burner accounts: one for sassy takes and one for like animal videos. Uh, no way. <laughs> but one is one is where I go to see like only cute things when I'm like having a stressful day. So it's a okay. lot of like you know we rate dogs and the dodo. And so we're like, putting that in description. Uh, one hundred percent. You know, like that. That is like that. That's where to go. Anyway, but, but not um, the other one. <laughs> but the thing is, like you know. And that's the interesting part of the field of algorithmic ethics. Most of it's built on this idea of unintended consequences that like people in the collective built something that ended up being harmful, but there wasn't actually a bad actor in the bunch. And I find that very fascinating. And that's how it's different from things like cybersecurity, adversarial ML, where you're actually just looking for bad people trying to do bad things. It makes the narrative different. It makes the kinds of solutions very, very different. It makes a problem to me more interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of this this idea that was kind of floating around I think probably like a year or two ago but the idea of having technologists and mathemat mathematicians taking the equivalent of what would be like the Hippocratic oath for them right because it's the same thing you're mentioning with like the engineer who's just sitting behind the screen they're building all of these models and they're more concerned with can I do it rather than should I do it and there really is no intentional process of evaluating like what where is kind of the moral compass on this uh, what are the the ramifications potentially like not even the first order like the second order effects of building these models here and like the insights that it could gain like what price are we paying there and I and, you know it sounds like it's a step in the right direction for sure to be able to do that because you know we have a lot of incredibly intelligent people building all of these models and doing all of these things but they can get very myopic in that in that you know in their in their like their little sandbox there so we need more people right to rein them in but like wh what are your thoughts on that mm -hmm. so if we think about like what the hippocratic oath is to doctors right because you know all of us probably have some sort of doctors in our family so the hippocratic oath is ultimately mm -hmm. like a ceremony right and it's a very it's a very meaningful ceremony but the ceremony it's kind of like graduation or something right where you like you've taken this oath and you kind of cross this line and now you are an ethical doctor and you've agreed to this but that doesn't come without the work beforehand so you think about like doctors and medical students they're socialized into a culture of hopefully of ethics right like they are theoretically <laughs> being taught this in medical school and their residency program they're being shown this by people around them so it's not it's not like you know this isn't a spell in harry potter it's not like you know you say the hippocratic oath and bam you're ethical exactly right uh but you know it's it is a journey and saying the oath is sort of an acknowledgement of that aspect of the journey so it is a nice thing to have but it doesn't translate over into data science because we've not yet built the kinds of institutions and tools. I mean, we're starting to, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I, and again, like, you know, if we had this conversation a couple of years ago, it would have been a very different conversation. I am really happy to see a lot of the starting points and the seeds existing in companies and educational institutions, et cetera. But like having the oath in and of itself would end up not being useful without the education underpinnings and the tools and resources underneath. Mm -hmm. Cool, okay. That's a good point to transition to Perry. Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, but here's some context for this part of the conversation. Ruman started a company called Parity that works in ethical AI. That was eventually acquired by Twitter and Ruman chose to stay at Twitter instead of staying at Parity. But Parity 2.0 was started with a new CEO. Cade Metz, a reporter for the New York Times, did a story on Parity, but pretty much left out Ruman completely, which is super unfair since she did the work to start the company. Anyways, that's your context. Back to the episode. In the interest of setting the record straight, we're not as big as the New York Times, but <laughs> maybe one day. <laughs> I would love for you to tell us a story from your mouth and in, in your words. Um, yeah. How you started Parity all the way up to uh, getting acquired by Twitter and like how you knew Twitter was the right choice. Yeah, I love telling this story. Um, so, you know, Parity is, was an algorithmic audit company. Um, and very specifically, I, you know, with a couple of collaborators built a uh, NLP model that actually helps identify risk from text. And, and the big problem I was solving is when like legal risk and compliance people try to talk to data scientists, it's really hard to communicate 
Data scientists need things that are specifically actionable for their models, for their data, and legal people don't understand those things and vice versa, right? So like uh, legal people need things that are more couched in their language and data scientists can't always provide that higher level view. So Damien said like, you get really myopic around the things you're working on and like legal people operate at a sort of a different plane of understanding. Um, so what we were building was an NLP model that actually helps identify risk areas and sort of pointed you in the right direction. Because the problem with people trying to audit their algorithms for ethics was that they didn't know what they didn't know. And often they would say like, okay, but can we just hire you to do it? Cause you know this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So you can't just build like a software that has all the tools. People don't know what tools to be using and what they should be asking, right? So you don't, you don't know when you're done. Um, yeah. So, you know, we started Parity, you know, Twitter kind of came into the picture around August-ish of last year. Um, you know, I talked to, to Ari Font, who's, who's my boss currently. You know, she's amazing. We had this really interesting conversation and they kind of just stayed on the roadmap for a bit. I had no interest at the time in selling. Like, you know, I had clients, we were building stuff. It was cool. Like all sorts of fun things were happening. Uh, but something about Twitter just stuck. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I will always say this. I asked to interview literally everybody. Like I wanted to talk to Prague, our CTO, and our head of comms, and Vidya, head of policy. I want to talk to everybody because I needed to make sure it was the right place to be. And to be also, to be honest, like I was looking for any red flag. If there was a single red flag, I was done. I was going to be out because I didn't, frankly, I didn't think I needed it. Uh, but something just stuck. And I talked to my lead investor, who's someone I've known for many years. So he comes from this is my friend Anders. He's uh, this amazing Norwegian fellow. Um, I've known them for a long time in the impact tech community. I was an advisor to their accelerator and they were the first people to invest in the company. And, you know, and he noticed this, he's like, why is it you keep going back to Twitter? What is it about it that's so appealing to you? And, you know, and he also asked like, what is it that you want to do? You know, some people have a deep aspiration to be the CEO of a company. Some people aspire to other things. And, and I thought about it and, you know, I realized I didn't have an aspiration to be a CEO of a company. I saw it as a vehicle for having impact. I wanted to make sure that this industry was headed in the right direction. And I felt like I had the right ideas and the vision to shape it in that direction. Accenture allowed me to shape that vision, allowed me to learn a lot. And I wanted to start this company so that other companies could benefit from it. What I saw in Twitter was the ability to have amazing impact right to a human being. So rather than it being like a tool you're building for a company and they're gonna implement a thing, like it is a different weight to think that every single time you make a change to a model at a place like Twitter, it actually impacts so many people all around the world right away. Um, and it's really important, it's really important work. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't think a chance, you know, to build and grow an ML ethics team with this level of impact would frankly come around very often. Um, so that's what sort of led to the to the aqua hire. Um, and I point out that it's an aqua hire because now we have Parity 2.0. Um, so Liz O'Sullivan, who was co-founder of Arthur AI, um, which is a model monitoring company, so similar, very similar space, is the new CEO of the company. And I'm really excited for her to be, you know, I, I mean, I, I remain as an advisor, as an investor also, um, but I'm super excited to see where, where she's taking it. And I have all sorts of insider information that I can't say yet but she'll ah. announce it in the weeks to come about <laughs> okay, sort of who cool. she's hiring, what they're building and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Awesome. That was a great story. I don't know. I've, so obviously on a much smaller, much, much smaller scale, I've done a lot of internships and I was like kind of deciding where to go full time. Mm -hmm. And I like totally understand where you're coming from with Twitter mm -hmm. where I don't know, there was just like a vibe that was like, right. Like I was like, wait, I actually feel kind of at home here. Like I, I like the people I'm working with. I feel like everybody's really open and honest. And like, I feel like I can ask the questions. And even if I don't mm -hmm. like the answers, at least I'll be able to always ask those questions. And mm -hmm. I think that was mm -hmm. a really important thing for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's also a very small company. I didn't realize, you know, Twitter's about like 6,000 people. Given the impact that the company has, it's actually not a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of humbling to think, you know, that how much, you know, how much, uh, how much a small company, you know, me, uh, what would count as like a mid-sized company can have an mm -hmm. impact on the world. Um, and I guess maybe a segue on my part to the investment fund that I'm building. I don't know if we could talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, please do. Yeah, I mean, I'm super excited about this. So part of, you know, part of me 
leaving parity behind, which did make me sad. It's like, you know, you literally, you're putting your child up for adoption. It's actually what it feels like, I'm not gonna lie. Um, was, you know, I, I, as I said, like my goal was to have impact in the community and really shape the direction of what is still a very, very young industry. And there are like 18 million ways I could see it going south and never succeeding. Um, so I wanted to start a small investment fund um, and we are specifically investing in companies that enable the responsible use of technology. So we are, we, we've invested in, of course, Parity 2.0 is our flagship investment, so algorithmic audit company. We invested in a company called Triple Blind, which has created a novel cryptographic way of doing data and algorithm sharing. So it's a privacy preserving company. Um, we've invested in a company called Confluence, which is using ML to transform your ETL processes to find dirty data and manipulated data. Um, and also I'm, I'm looking at companies in differential privacy, in synthetic data generation. Um, so, you know, just really interested in the spectrum of companies, like the universe of companies that will be needed to make sure that we're doing, uh, you know, our, our innovations responsibly and ethically. That's awesome. So why did you decide to go the investor route? Like, why did you feel like that was where you could make a lot of impact as well? I mean, to be perfectly selfish, right? Like back to, I think the early question of like, nerd FOMO um, this is where nerd FOMO comes in and like yeah. be perfectly selfish I just get to talk to a lot of really smart people building things and learn all all about it so I talked to the founder of Tumult Labs which is a differential privacy company and I was just like asking all these questions about differential privacy because like I understand what it is in concept but like I don't have the time to go and I wish I did have the time right but I don't so I just get to ask all the questions uh, yeah. And also it's very rewarding. I mean, I, so I have been, I was a teacher for a very long time, right? In grad school, we have to teach and I kind of always end up in these positions. I really love see, helping other people succeed. And I see being an investor as doing that. And I know there's like a lot of like, you know, negative connotation to using the term VC, but I think oh, yeah. one way to look at it. <laughs> I didn't want to use it. <laughs> no, I know. But like one way to look at it is to think of like, I get to enable someone to be successful. And like, I want to find the right kinds of people that are trying to do the right thing and give them the resources that they might need, right? They, they're probably smarter than me, right? At whatever it is they're doing and they should be. So what can I offer them? I can offer them funding. So they're not worried about how they're going to feed themselves or pay their rent, right? And they can focus on, you know, being great and doing great things. Um, so yeah, part of it's nerd FOMO because like, I really want to learn all about synthetic data. Oh, and adversarial ML is the other thing I'm super into. Um, but I don't have the time to learn all these things. So I can talk yeah. to really smart people building companies and these things. And when you're an investor, you have to, they have to answer your questions because you're an investor. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I think they're often not used to talking to a technical. Like I struggled with that when I was raising money and I'm like trying to explain to you. I think the problem is, you know, with a lot of funds, they hire very financy people who are really mm -hmm. good at like reading the current market and responding to the current market. But if you're building something that's meant for tomorrow's world, it's really hard to sell it. I think, for example, like a year ago, it was really hard to have conversations about building an algorithmic audit company because people did not understand what it was. And now you could get a ton of money, which is great and you should, right? But it's really hard to sell tomorrow's conversations. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of founders are not used to having an investor talk to them who's like specifically asking about their models. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, those are always the investors that I enjoy talking because they would just like nerd out. That's awesome. Anyway, so now I feel like you and I are going to get a lot of hate on our Twitter accounts. And I sincerely hope that doesn't happen because I was awful <laughs> a few weeks ago when that happened to me. Oh, no. Okay. Hopefully not. I haven't gotten hate on my Twitter account yet. So I think <laughs> it's like a rite of passage. Like I, it has to happen. Oh, I hope not. No, I know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I sincerely hope it doesn't, right? Like it's not yeah. fun. It's not nice. We've, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if it's for the best, but we publicly announced before that we were looking forward to getting our first hater on the podcast. <laughs> that's one of our KPIs. That's how we know. <laughs> <your KPIs. laughs> uh, so we'll see how that goes. But yeah, and is it know, like n n haters per number of like yeah, denominators, yeah, exactly. like number of listeners, like n hater per number of listeners? Yeah, yeah. as long as we stay above metric. a certain number, but we also want to be below a certain number. So it's it's a very oh, yeah, narrow bet. I, yeah. I totally get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. You have like a and threshold of hate. Like, yeah, and bonus points for like the loyal haters that are just like consistently on There you go. There you go. Yeah, because yeah, no, they're I'm listeners. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're listeners at the end of the day too. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. So Dr. Roman Chaudhary, hopefully I'm not butchering your last name. I know there's variations of that, but um this honestly we've taken so much from this conversation already and we are seven minutes over time so we want to be respectful of your very valuable time because there's lives you need to go save 
So in, uh, in, in uh, Next Iteration Tradition, we have a final question that we ask all of our guests. And we would love to ask you that question right now. So that question is, if there was a billboard that would reach millions or even billions of people, what would you put that put on that billboard and why? And you can stratify this billboard to reach a specific audience if you want to. It can be specifically people back home in Bangladesh, or it could be anyone at Twitter, you know, anybody you want. I suppose it would say, do you really need it? Um, and I think that applies to so many people in so many settings and in so like just everything. So specifically in the field of ML ethics, right? One of the questions that we ask in our risk assessment is, you know, is, is this model better than what you would have without it? Right? And, you know, this applies to our mass wasteful consumption that's leading to climate change. You really need you know, the car that burns really premium gasoline, et cetera, do you really need to, you know, buy certain things? I think it contributes to a wasteful economy. I think it contributes to just this like lack of thoughtfulness. Um, and obviously I know I work at a social media company, but even the time we spend online and away from the people that matter to us, like, do we really need it? Do you really need one more hit on TikTok? Um, <laughs> yeah. The answer is always think, yes. <laughs> Oh my God, let me tell you, I had to delete that app because it was getting out of control. Like it's I love horrible. that app so much, but they have like, they have cracked the formula. They really but have. Yeah. You, need to do, you need to do an analysis on their suggestion algorithm for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I find, well, cause you know, what's interesting is it's a combination of human curation and algorithm, which mm -hmm. is cause like they identify influencers and they give them resources. And this is not just like, you know, TikTok houses or whatever, influencer houses, like they actually give them, give them access to like new music and like meme music and whatever. So they yeah. like curate it, but then also there's the algorithm. But yeah, I think that's what I would put on a billboard. It would be, do you need it? Love that. That Honestly, that's definitely one of the best answers we've gotten. Um, I tried. And, you know, you, it's just effortless for you. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we, yeah, I mean, honestly, I've taken a lot out of this uh, uh, conversation. I'm sure Fawad has as well, because he's been- so much. Yeah, oh, yeah, like he's been a huge yeah, fan of your work. I had to mute and take some notes a couple of times. I hope you don't mind. Just to, yeah. to well, I mean, I'll listen to this back for sure. Uh, in, in shameless self-plug fashion, I will listen to my own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we also started this uh, podcast, like, you know, just for fun, but also it's been a, a serendipitous thing. It's been a very powerful networking tool. And I think hearing from you, I think our next venture might be starting a venture fund. That sounds like the next best networking tool out there so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> it, it is a good way to like resolve nerd fumble let me tell you okay because we have tons of that so we, we need to get rid of that energy somehow <laughs> so uh is there anything left that you would like to promo or shout out or anything like that uh before we wrap up oh goodness i don't know i feel like i've talked about everything that's going on right now I, oh yeah i know you know what i do if there is something really big my team is dropping in the next week like big mm. big it's like it actually is a pretty big fucking deal <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm like I'm okay. like extremely okay, now, now that I've hyped it up no but like it is worth hyping up okay so <laughs> okay, Twitter yeah. uh so are you familiar with the the hacker conference DEFCON yes mm -hmm. okay so it's in Vegas every year this year it's like a hybrid conference uh it's in early August so Twitter at DEFCON is hosting the first algorithmic bias bug bounty so we are putting up mm -hmm. an algorithm for people to evaluate and we're putting cash money behind the best answers. No that way. is super cool. That's such a, cool is a big idea. deal. It's yeah. a big deal. And we're actually that the first company really to cool. ever do it. We're the first company to ever put up an out. Yeah, I mean, we like Twitter has this commitment to transparency. Uh, it's literally in you know our core values. It's part of our core KPIs. And as part of a commitment to transparency, we are actually, um, you know, sharing our rubric. I mean, we've already done it with our image crop algorithm. We're going to yeah. put this algorithm up there. Blasted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also we're going to, we're, we're actually putting money behind. I think the big takeaway from this is that uh, first of all, it's labor that people in the community perform and we want to compensate people for that labor for because sure. there is a precedence for it. Right. And, you know, two is, I think it's the only way to, for us as people inside companies to improve the products we're building is to actually mm -hmm. work with the community on it. So our hope isn't necessarily that people are like, going to audit the specific algorithm and find biases, but it's actually that we're going to start coming to like a standard in our community for what it means to do an audit, what it means to find bias, and also mm -hmm. 
effectively compensate people when they do find problems. Mm-hmm. And that sort of incentivizes the whole deal. Like now you know mm-hmm. how to look for bias and also there's a reason for you to look for bias. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then who yeah, knows, maybe like ethical, like, you know, bias hackers will become a thing and yeah. you all can, you all can go become like freelance bug bounty bias <laughs> people. Just like answerable to no one. The there you go. Like <laughs> answerable to no one. Yeah. That'd be go. sick. Yeah. And like, who knows, maybe there'll be some underlying things that even behind the veil of bias that exists. Cause it's not until you lift that veil, do you uncover like, what are the mm-hmm. maybe like smaller little building blocks that, that mm-hmm. uh, really contribute to that bigger problem. So that's, yeah. yeah, that's super interesting. And hopefully this sets a serious precedent for the community to, you know, start doing more things like this because th- we hardly go back and reevaluate the things that we've done until it's too late. So Dr. Chowdhury, thank you again so much for joining us. It has been, I cannot tell you how much of a pleasure it's been. And uh, I mean, I figured we ran out of time so fast, but any last thoughts, Vlad, before we wrap up? No, just, I'm very, I'm, I'm actually joining Twitter in September. So Hopefully excited to meet you in person. If, if COVID's fine, I know the Delta variant's been been going crazy in California, but if everything's fine, uh, excited to meet you in September sometime and and chat more about the work your team does. Awesome, super excited! Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for coming on. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Think you got it? Nah, we're on the next iteration.